Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Hey guys, this week I am going to be doing a... Encore episode with author Maureen Boyle. I have been a little under the weather this week, so I apologize for not having an original show this week, but please enjoy this interview with author Maureen Boyle about her book, The Ghost, about police chief Gregory Adams. So please check it out wherever you can purchase a book. We don't know exactly what happened on December 4th, 1980. For 37 years, the murder of Saxonburg Police Chief Gregory Adams was shrouded in mystery. But what we didn't realize until this investigation really unfolded in the last few weeks is the hero that Chief Adams actually was, because he really fought for his life that day. It's long been known that Adams and Webb struggled during a traffic stop, with Webb hitting Adams several times over the head with a blunt object. While it was thought that Adams may have shot Webb, now it's been determined that Adams broke Webb's leg and severely ripped his lip. Reporting downtown, Andy Sheehan, KDKA TV News. The home is owned by Lillian Webb, who is the ex-wife of Donald Eugene Webb, a New England mob associate who has been missing since 1980 after he was suspected of gunning down a police chief in the small town of Saxonburg, Pennsylvania. Now a spokesperson for the Boston office of the FBI confirms a court-authorized search warrant is connected to this long-running Webb case. Now coming up new at 6 o'clock, neighbors tell us this isn't the only activity they've seen here in recent months. With the Target 12 investigators, Tim White, Eyewitness News. Hello and welcome to episode 112 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media production. On this week's episode, I have a special guest, and that is one Maureen Boyle, true crime author. And we are here to discuss... Her new book about the murder of a young police chief, 31-year-old Gregory Adams, from December 4th, 1980. And it's a really great interview. If you've heard her interview with me before about the New Bedford Highway killings, uh, she's very knowledgeable. She spent 25 years covering crime in the New, the New England area, and she is very knowledgeable on the subject matter. So... Definitely a great episode this week, and just wanted to say thanks to Brian F. from Cleveland for helping out with uh, the show fund this week, as well as Tony C. So, appreciate you guys for uh, pitching in and keeping these uh, shows on the air. And again, if you want to donate, you can click on the donate button on the show notes in wherever you get your podcasts so again this is an episode about the murder of gregory adams that went unsolved 
for a significant amount of time. And here to discuss the case is Maureen Boyle. And since she is the number one resource on this subject matter, I am going to turn over the show to our conversation about who killed Gregory Adams. I am very lucky to be joined this week with author Maureen Boyle, who is the author of Shallow Graves, and she has been a previous guest on the show to discuss the New Bedford Highway killings. Welcome back, Maureen. Thank you for having me. I love being on your show. All of your shows are terrific. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you on. And you know, in regards to the shallow graves, any updates on the New Bedford case? I know that one's like kind of cold, but well, it's and it, but it's also very near and dear to my heart. Uh, just as some cases are really you feel very strongly about the a district attorney's office. They now have a cold case squad, and they have been going through all of the files again, um, and a lot of people have come forward. Uh, some with very good information or so-so information. Um, obviously, it's not really good information because a killer hasn't been identified, but people are you know, slowly coming forward, uh, remembering different things or uh, letting police know, well, uh, there may be this person whom they always suspected could be involved and they feel a little bit more comfortable coming forward. At this point, though, uh, nothing really has uh worked out yeah that's unfortunate because yeah. i mean how many victims again were involved in that case there was uh 11 women went missing between march of 88 and september of 88 uh and nine of them were have been found two are still missing um, a lot of people uh think that the case went on much longer because the bodies were found uh into 1989 but it was a very short period of time where the, uh, the 11 drug addicted women went missing, uh, believed roughly in March of 88. And then they have a firm uh, close date in uh, the uh, in September of 88. Yeah, it was a uh, must have been quite a active um, spree. I mean, it's just it's very unusual. It, I mean. I, I agree with you. Very, very unusual, especially for uh, this area. And while all of the women, uh, like a short recap, all of the women were found along uh, highways circling New Bedford. New Bedford is a, fish, a very well-known historic fishing port in Massachusetts. And at that time in 1988, it was you know fairly quiet uh, rural around New Bedford. Um, and they were found along the highways in the community circling New Bedford, but not in New Bedford, even though all the women were believed to have gone missing in New Bedford. Now, that could have been a tactic on the killer's part, you know, mixing up jurisdictions as yeah. as profilers say they'd like, like to do at some yeah. point in time. So, But it's, uh, the way that the highway system works, imagine almost like a, uh, a cross, but it wasn't quite a cross. But you had New Bedford in the center and a highway going north and then a highway uh, crossing through New Bedford. And that's where the, the women were found. Wow. Yeah, that's wild that nobody has been caught. I mean, that 
you would think that somebody who would have been close to the person involved with the killings would have noticed some sort of change in their personality because that is just unusual behavior. I mean, need needless to say it's unusual behavior, Yeah, but it's, it's extreme to the extreme. I mean, it's like when Bundy was at his last rope, you know, and he just was, you know, raging kind of like just yeah rage killings i guess it just sort of sounds like and uh we're not actually here to talk about that case today as much as it's near and dear to your heart we hope that people will come close come you know come forward and come forward and you know bring closure to some of these cases but we are here to talk about your new book and what is your new book uh it's called the ghost uh the murder of Uh, Police Chief uh, Greg Adams in the hunt for his killer. Uh, It details the murder of Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, Police Chief Gregory Adams in December of 1980. uh, And the decades-long hunt by uh, Pennsylvania State Police, Massachusetts State Police, and most importantly by the FBI in uh, trying to find the man that they identified who had killed the chief. Um, It is a a fascinating story. Um, I first came across it in um, right after Shallow Graves came out. I was thinking of doing another book, and uh, this case finally came to a close. And I um, I just started doing some some research on it. I uh, spoke with a uh, someone that I uh, knew at another paper. Uh, who was very familiar with uh, Fall River, which is a city ne- next to it, and sort of picked his brain a bit about uh, Fall River and criminals in Fall River. And then I went down to Saxonburg uh, in 2018 and talked to people there about the chief. Uh, now, Saxonburg is a lovely, lovely town uh, in Western Pennsylvania. It is about an hour from Pittsburgh. It, People call it Mayberry USA, and it really does fit the TV show. Uh, You can walk down Main Street and everyone knows each other. They have uh, parades all the time. They have dinners on Main, they shut down Main Street and have dinners. Uh, It's just a very homey, very family-oriented community. Very small, very tight, and the people in fact Saxonburg never forgot um, Greg Adams and always kept hope that he would be the killer would be found and it was just just so encouraging to see a town like that where people really were good and it was just really very very nice it was just a, a lovely, lovely place to, to be yeah, you know, the, from what I read about Saxonburg, it's definitely a very small town. Um, you know, Gregory Adams was very young to be a police chief. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I would assume that has to do with the fact that the town's very small. Yeah. But 31, I believe he was. And that's pretty that, you know, right rose the ranks pretty quickly. Yes. Well, there, there weren't that many people on the t- police department. Uh, there was only, uh, he was at that time, 
when he started, he was, I think, one of two or one of three. And uh, when he died, um, he there was only two police officers, full-time police officers. It's one of those communities where they do, you know, really rely on part-timers or volunteers. Um, and he was also uh, worked with the fire department because maybe they had a volunteer fire department. Yeah, and that's what you do in small towns. Like, yeah. I mean, as far as from what I've researched and you know people i've talked to you know you kind of you're a man of many hats in yeah. in a town like that and uh and when did this uh so so bring me back to bring me back to the case it, it um in december of 1980 beginning of december uh the police chief had pulled over a vehicle uh just a couple of blocks away from the police department in downtown, uh, he, they pulled the car into a parking lot of a hardware store. It was it had snowed before, so there's snow on the ground. And no one knows exactly why he pulled the car over. Um, but obviously, probably because it was considered suspicious, because everyone knows everyone in Saxonburg, and he'd never seen this car before. So he pulls the car over and... The next thing anyone knows about is a young boy who lived near the uh, hardware store heard what sounded like a clanging sound, a banging sound, and then he heard someone calling, help me, help me. And he told his mom and they looked out the window and they went outside and they found the chief um, mortally wounded. And it went from there. He died at the hospital. The, they made the, made it to the hospital in record time, but everyone just converged on the, uh, in the area and, and also fanned out looking for the vehicle. Um, and the guy, the killer just seemed to have vanished. The car was just gone. Uh, they had a pretty good idea of the make of the car. So in all points, bulletin went out. Uh, they eventually found a, a driver's license that they believed was that of the killer. It turned out that it wound up uh, being an alias, uh, but they didn't know that at, at that time. So it took a while for them to unravel that. And they, the, the trail seemed to have gone cold, but it would heat up at different points. Uh, but it really became, what this story became as I was uh, researching it, it was a story of secrets of um, in some ways likes shallow graves although I didn't realize it at the time you know with shallow graves uh, I never thought that pe someone could keep a, a deadly secret like that for so many years especially in a community that small and it turns out that not only was there one secret but there was two be, you know, the, the, the killer in this case was from the, the was living in the greater New Bedford area. Uh, and no one uh, would would say where he was. And it, it, so it became an, uh, a story of unraveling secrets. So at this point, they've discovered the body. They've uncovered this uh, alias ID. Yeah. Uh, we know it's 1980 and 
therefore, you know, technology, they don't have the internet, can't pretty much do a quick database search on whether or not there's a, you know, Stanley or I think that was the yeah, the, Stanley Portis was the name that, that was on the driver's license. Now, so that in 1980, now today, you're right, you'd just call it all up on the on the internet, they'd plug in the name and all these aliases would come up. Um, but that's not how it was back then. No. They they had to physically go to the uh, uh, motor vehicle offices in at uh, in at least two states to unravel who this person was. And they only discovered his real name, which is Donald Webb, uh, once an FBI agent got in touch with someone from the Massachusetts State Police. Wow. That's uh, so, so this Donald Webb. It- he he was he he was from he settled in Massachusetts, um, but he is from all over the place. Um, he was a low level mobster, a bank robber, yeah. burglar, uh, fencing material. Uh, he there's you know stories that was fencing material in, in uh, to the mob in uh, in uh, Rhode Island, the Providence area. Oh yeah, big but, mob. Yeah, very, very big mob area. Uh, But, you know, obviously he was not, you know, part of it. No. Um, So he was just one of the hangers on trying to make money. And he was using his wife's um, dead husband's name as an alias. Wow. So that that was another really sort of uh, quirk. Wrinkle. Wrinkle uh, and quirk that the the police found was really interesting. And of course, his, his wife insisted she had absolutely no idea where he was. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. And that's uh, about secrets. It's so. about secrets and uh, how you can keep them. And, yeah. you know, and they were convinced that she had uh, was uh, knew where he was and was keeping that very, very large secret. And it was a secret that was kept for almost 40 years. Wow. Now, back to, you know, Gregory. He was a father, right? Yeah, he had two small children. Uh, he'd worked in uh, the D.C. area after, after, he, after college, went down there. Uh, but he's from, you know, small towns in uh, he wasn't originally from Saxonburg. He was from other communities, but he was much more comfortable in a small town setting. And he met his uh, soon-to-be wife on uh, on a bus when he was going back to work. He came up to visit his family and was taking the bus back to work. And she was heading down there uh, looking for work and to stay with uh, her sister for a bit while she looked. And they hit it off. And eventually she came back up here and he discovered he really did not like the big city lifestyle and working in um, in the area there. It really didn't you know, suit him. So he came back up to uh, Pennsylvania, found a job at Saxon in Saxonburg as a police officer, took it and eventually became uh, the police chief. He worked at the uh, 
In addition to being the police chief, he volunteered with the fire department. He did uh, officer training uh, work. He would visit his grandfather every Sunday for dinner with his family, He'd bring them out to his grandfather's house. Uh, he was very much a family man, uh, always did things by the book. He was uh, planning to go to law school and actually had enrolled in, in law school, but wound up withdrawing before he started because his, his wife was pregnant mm. and he wanted to focus his time and you know finances on on his family. Yeah. So he did everything. I mean, these two, the two, Donald Webb and Greg Adams, could not have been more different. You had Donald Webb with a long record, long, long criminal record. You know, I mean, bad guy uh, to the nth degree. Uh, and I mean, he, he was the type of Donald Webb was the type of person who would look up obituaries and then break into the houses with his little crew um, while people were at the wake or at the funeral. It's almost like an urban legend that you hear about. Yeah. And, but, you know, back then, uh, some newspapers would actually print the street addresses of uh, people who had died in the obituaries, uh, you know, and eventually they stopped that. But hindsight. Yeah. But in the seventies, they used to do that. I mean, I, it makes sense because if you want to send your guards, you know, yeah. and I'm not saying that, you know, everybody that's reading somebody's newspaper or the address yeah. in the newspaper is a criminal by any stretch. It's just, you know, I've, I've had my own experience with being in the newspaper and people, yeah, weird things can happen when you're yeah. in the newspaper, but nonetheless, and you know that the whole Donald Webb being connected down. Now you said he, so was he connected with the? You know he wasn't involved with like the Patriarca family or anything like that, but obviously he He's, would sell them goods or he he, he was he would uh, be on the outskirts of it, if you will. You know, gotcha. One of those hanger-oners. Um, and all of his crimes, interestingly, uh, were not in where he lived. He and his crew would go outside of the area. They would go to places like Pennsylvania. They would go to the Poconos. They would go to uh, New York. Uh, you know, they did one job in uh, Colony, New York, where they would go knocking on doors, uh, claiming that they were with the uh, city or the state, and they had to do a house inspection. And they, someone would, you know, divert the their uh, homeowner's attention and someone else would rob them. I mean, these wow. were these type of common. They would rob um, jewelry stores, uh, posing as uh, salesmen to scout it out. Uh, and they would go up and down the East Coast, you know, Florida, Delaware. Um, they'd be in Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, uh, parts of New Jersey. New York, you know, they would go all over the place. Makes me think of Henry Hill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, they were, uh, but they always, they didn't always get caught. But they got caught a lot in his crew. You know, they, when you do, when you do that much crime, you know, eventually the, 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 it's going to catch up with you eventually. I yeah. mean, let's just play the cards. Yes. And they, you know, so, so they were, they were shrewd, but they're obviously not that shrewd. They would get 
get get caught because yeah. you know you can only roll the dice so many times and you can only count on henchmen to do so many exactly. things the right way yeah. <laughs> you're not so, the one in charge fully in yeah. charge then yeah. so yeah, so when, so when the chief was killed, um, Webb was actually, uh, he skipped bail on another charge in New York. So, so he, he was wanted. Yeah. So he may have thought that the chief would, you know, that it was up. However, he's also clearly not all that bright because during that period of time, time in the early 80s and a lot of communities and they didn't have computers and they didn't have computers in the in the cruisers so when they stopped a car and when they would run the plate and they would run the name it would not necessarily show that someone was wanted i mean that was that was one of the major uh problems uh particularly during the 80s of people who were wanted slipping through the cracks because there wasn't a central database. So even if the chief had run his name, the name of Stanley Portis, it would not have necessarily come up that he was wanted. Yeah. So had he been going by Stanley? Like, was that his actual? No. Was okay, no. so he was just going by Donald Webb. He was Donald just Webb. It. His his he was just his his birth name was uh, uh Donald Perkins, but he had gone by uh, Donald Webb because that was his his grandparents' name and his grandparents had raised him. So he right. he he eventually legally changed his name. I did see that he legally changed yeah. his name. I was wondering what the reason was behind yeah. that, but that explains that. Yeah. Yeah. So. So as far as um, the investigation went, you know, so they figure out how long did it take them to figure out that it was Donald Webb, like time wise? This happened in December. So December, they knew, figured out by Christmas. It was early December that they uh, that the chief was killed. And by Christmas, um, they they knew who exactly who they were looking for and they had an arrest warrant for him in hand by so christmas. so at christmas time they know this guy they know yeah. his name they do they have uh an ad, they have an address i'm assuming yep yeah. yeah. they go they go to the wife's house knock 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 she says i don't know where he is they keep on going back knock 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 I don't know where he is. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. And they, they keep watch on her for, for years, uh, hoping that she would lead them to her, to him. Uh, she would take evasive uh, measures when, while they were following her. It was, uh, there, there's interesting stories uh, in the book about how she would, you know, evade uh, law enforcement. But she Give me was, one example. Oh, uh, one time she was, was, there was one story that no one, people recount, but they don't necessarily know if it's all that true, that uh, she was in Vermont going on the highway. She was pulled over uh, and a state trooper pulled up to see if she had any car trouble. And she said, no, 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 and took off. And then afterwards, they believed that Donald may have been in the woods uh, relieving himself. And there's a, a, another time where 
uh, a, someone from the uh, FBI was following her and, you know, she pulled off uh, very quickly uh, so that he wasn't able to, he'd have to double back. And she just waited in a parking lot until he came back because she didn't want to get him too mad. <laughs> cat and mouse. Yes, very much cat and mouse. And so basically they, okay, so they know it's him. Yeah, they know and it's him. so they surveil her because they feel like she's the closest thing to getting to him. Now, were there any sightings of him or anything along those lines? Like, I mean, he was a wanted man at this point. And, uh, you know, he said you said that he had obvious t- ties to criminal other criminals. Were there any other did people say, hey, we saw Donald Webb in Providence or anything like that? They did have one sighting in Fall River that they, the FBI did announce and were looking for information. Uh, but during that period of time, a lot of people had absolutely no information or did not even know about this case in the area where he was, uh, where he was from. Uh, the case got a lot of press in Pennsylvania, but locally there was not, there was hardly anything in the papers at that time. And we have to keep in mind, in, uh, in 1980, there was no internet uh, or no social media. So there was no, uh, there wasn't that instantaneous uh, uh, information out there for, for the public. They relied on up. newspapers. So there was, there was nothing. There was, you know, essentially nothing. Uh, I found a couple of very small little stories that were in the local papers, but that was it. And, you know, one one had said that he was in, um, they, they believe he was sighted in, uh, in Fall River. There was some other sightings in Pennsylvania uh, where there was a crew that was doing some break-ins. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, reported sightings that where he was, you know, on a, on an island, uh, he was seen getting off of a plane. He was, you know, in Florida. He was in California. He was. I mean, they followed so many different leads, and um, in some of them, they believed that it was him. But in some cases, no. It just so it kind, of, kind of reminds me of Whitey Bulger. It, it yeah. really was very similar to the Whitey Bulger case. There's a lot, a lot of similarities in the two cases. Uh, that you know, and, and eventually, uh, as a detail in the book, the uh, FBI agents who were involved in the Whitey Bulger case, the ones who eventually found Whitey, not the ones yep. who were involved uh, in the controversy involving Whitey. I, I uh, know one of them, yeah, and yes, and he is absolutely wonderful. Yes, he is. Uh, they, Phil Torsney, shout out. Yes, yeah. Phil, Phil Torsney is an absolutely uh, wonderful, wonderful, very ethical, honest uh, uh, FBI agent. Uh, he and another agent by the name of Tommy McDonald, who also worked on the Bulger case. Uh, the two of uh, Phil had, when he came uh, came to the, this area, um, he started working on the, doing some work on the, uh, on the Donald Webb hunt. 
And but then he had the forced retirement and he convinced Tommy uh, McDonald to to take over the case. And, you know, the, the two of them were really instrumental, I think, in bringing this case to a close. Um, so you, your listeners will know, yes, there is actually an ending to this case, unlike Shallow Graves, which is very you know, open-ended. There is an ending, um, and it's a very satisfying ending, sort of. Um, but Phil was, Phil Torson was absolutely um, really one of the driving forces in getting this uh, reopened uh, because he wound up convincing other people um, to keep the work going. Um, so they were the two of them, along with Noreen Gleason, who is also uh, in the Boston office, who had brought the two of them to Boston in the hunt for Whitey Bulger. Uh, they had all really worked to figure out how to best um, deal with the, the Donald Webb case. Now, what was Donald Webb's wife's name again? Lillian. Did... Lillian. Lillian. Yes. Lillian. So Lillian is basically a social pariah, I'm assuming at this point, you know. Uh, no, no, uh, no, 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 no. It's, uh, you know, as in all communities and she's from the area. She grew up in New Bedford. Um, I think a lot of people, a lot of people knew her um, and some people I believe probably felt sorry for her, you know, here she has been, you know, deserted by her husband who is, uh, you know, a bad boy, you know, and killed a police chief. Um, he put her in this position. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's empathy. Yeah. For, by some people who don't, who, who weren't, weren't familiar with the full story. And, and as you know, there's so much gray area in, all stories and everyone's background life uh, yes you know uh you know lillian was a, a young widow with a um when she met uh donald webb she had a you know a young child um and that was a period of time when you know good jobs for women were not plentiful did you get a chance to interview the children of uh, Gregory Adams? I, I spoke with Ben, who was uh, the oldest child, okay. uh, not his youngest. Uh, I spoke to, to Marion, um, his widow. Um, you know, both of the boys were very, very young. Um, the Greg Jr. Was, was an infant at the time. And uh, Ben was a toddler. Um, so Ben has just very hazy memories of his father. Um, and, you know, I, I give uh, Marianne uh, Adams Jones, she has since remarried, uh, a lot of credit because she really tried to do the best she could with her boys um, and give them the best life possible. Uh, while still dealing with her own grief. You know, yeah, I mean, her I entire life just you know, was upside down. Yeah, flipped on a dime. Yes. Literally. And so did Greg's parents, were Greg's parents still alive at that time? Yeah, his parents were still alive. His, uh, you know, his sisters were uh, 
were alive. So the, the extended family was all all around there. Um, and Major. You know, people in, Major. in town stepped in to, and made all the arrangements for, excuse me, made, made the, the funeral arrangements and even made sure that a Christmas tree was brought in for the for the kids for, uh, because she just yeah. couldn't deal with with all of that. There was just too many details while still deal, dealing with grief and also making sure that she protected the kids and kept them on, you know, the schedule that kids need. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine what she was going through at that time, trying to balance grief, mourning, mad anger, yep. uh, the holidays, uh, just... She's a very strong woman, very, very has strong to be. woman. You know, it's a, I'm in awe of her. It's such a strong, strong woman. So she's doing well. Yes. To- yep. She's doing well. And um, she's, you know, obviously retired now. She's sure. doing, doing very, very well. And grandmother and just a, she's just a lovely woman. No, but now... How in, I know that you mentioned that you got interested in this case in 2017. What was it about his case that was so interesting to you? Um, you know, the hunt for him, how he was found, um, how people can keep secrets. I think that is like the key, how people can keep secrets. It is just, so um, confounding to me that people could keep um, secrets that could hurt so many people. And that was, you know, both the case in the shallow graves, the New Bedford uh, serial killing. And in this case, uh, because the where the location of Donald Webb was kept secret all these years. It really was an open wound to the family. Uh, they never knew when the other shoe would drop, so to speak. Um, they never, they never had justice because they knew who the killer was, but he wasn't uh, paying the price for what he did. And, it, and it's, it's just astounding because it, it forced them every year to relive uh, what happened, particularly uh, the chief's wife. Every year, subconsciously, she would remember what happened right before Christmas. Yeah. That's right through, just... you know, the holidays. The holidays are marked by his death. And if Donald Webb had been located much sooner, I think her life, there would still be the pain of loss, but she would know that one door was closed. Not that there's closure, because I don't think there's ever closure in any of these cases, but a door of the the criminal justice system, at least, would be closed, where she would know he's here, He's, you know, I may have to, you know, keep dealing with a parole board. Um, he might may try to get a release, but he's he's locked up. Right. Um, he won't be living his life. You know, she would her her husband was she visited her husband at the cemetery 
while Donald Webb for years was out there and he was doing whatever he wanted. You know, he could be having steak dinners. He could, you know, go to movies. He could go, he could do things. Yes, he was wanted, but he was alive. Um, and he could come and go, maybe looking over his shoulder, but he still was able to live. And he yeah. was still a free man, a hunted man, but still a free man. So justice was never, ever done for the family. And that's what, and for the community, because the entire community was still grieving. They would talk about even after, in, in 2018, people were still talking about Greg Adams uh, and just talking about Greg and what he was like. Um, and it was almost in reverent terms when they would use his name. Uh, so they never, ever forgot. It's, yeah, it's a constant wound that yeah. they have to walk around with that literally they're living in mourning while this person is living in, you know, exile, but now also not being held accountable for the crime that he committed, which is pretty much the worst crime you can commit in U.S. criminal cases, the killing of a police officer. And I can only... I feel so bad for the kids and the family that had to navigate that type of atmosphere that was basically for the next few years or well, you know, a number of years was a complete unknown. Yeah. And to think that like, it's all about secrets and to think people can keep these things to themselves it's amazing. It's just, isn't it just amazing? The power of it, it, the power of secrets. Yeah. It, it went, when I was uh, way back when, before I went into teaching, uh, well, not that long ago, but I was a, a when I was a newspaper reporter and I was did primarily uh, cops and courts crime, and I was always amazed. There was one particular city I was covering uh, where people would not give statements to the police. There was that really strong no snitching um, culture. And it always shocked me really to the core that they could talk about, oh, we need to clean up our streets. Why the community, people aren't doing enough to keep our streets safe when people in the community on those streets were not coming forward to say this person committed this murder or this person shot up this house. Uh, and I, I, that's always been abhorrent to me. And it, I was always just so shocked. Um, and we sometimes think that's a new phenomenon, the non-snitching culture, uh, but it has been going on for such a long time and has been, you know, immortalized in movies and, you know, people, People think it's cool when they see mafia movies, you know, they, they're not telling, you know, they're not quote unquote snitching, they're not a rat. Um, but if you flip it to the other side, when people are committing vicious crimes and they don't, aren't brought to justice, the entire community suffers. And yeah. 
it's, you know, whether it's a murder, whether it's a shooting, whether it's a robbery, it's all part of that same ball of yarn that keeps on unraveling. Well, it's just the ripple effect. You think about you think about what happened when Donald Webb made the decision to kill Gregory Adams or the decision Gregory Adams made to pull over Donald Webb. I mean, it's a sliding doors theory, you know, I mean, what what life could have been like if he wouldn't have made that decision that day. Um, But the ripple effect of what did happen, you know, it affected his wife, his now widow, his children his future, his kids, his future grandchildren, because that's always going to be stuck in their mind. The community, the fact that this guy is still out there and nobody knows where, you know, where he is at this point. I I just, there are so many things about this case that it's just like, you know, when you drop a stone in the river and then just see that pattern go out, it just takes out. It's like a tsunami in this of, of the, depression and anger and uh ang- i mean just the whole thing is just frustrating and it's all get out because all you have to do is just say you know over here <laughs> you know yeah. i know that's not a great visual for for the radio but you know what i mean it's yeah. just uh hey you can submit anonymously you can go to crime stoppers you can go and you don't even have to be a part of the case you just have to you know, open up your Pandora's box and just let them know what you know, because somebody knows. And, and you know, in, in all these cases, you know, the New Bedford case, there's somebody out there that knows a heck of a lot more than what there is out there. And again, with this case, you know. It, we, it, and what, what also made it kind of quirky in this case is that Donald Webb's stepson, at the time, was a New Bedford cop. Oh. Uh, he, you know, eventually left the department. There had been a little bit of a controversy over it, uh, but he eventually left the department. He uh, had told reporters that he left um, because, you know, he, he felt that it was unsafe for him to be there, and so he so he quit. He didn't feel he was being backed up. Um, he's also under indictment. Um, for a massive gaming operation in uh, in Massachusetts, it's the largest gaming operation in the state. Um, so, the it's apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> well, um, I mean, I, technically, he's not his son, so I mean, yeah. I guess that's unfair. Uh, but he he had he had been uh, using some gaming uh, uh, gaming machines earlier uh, and had been charged earlier, but then it there was a loophole in the law uh, so that what he was doing much earlier really wasn't um, illegal. And since then they've changed the law. And I don't know whether he was aware that the law had, had changed um, and he may have thought that he was still doing it legally. That's up for that case is still pending. So that's up for the jury and his uh, and his defense attorneys and the prosecutors to figure out how that's going to play out. Yeah, that's in- that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, that's another massive, rip, you know, massive. another wrinkle in the in the yeah. case. <laughs> yeah, just I think it couldn't get any stranger. It, it it did. Yeah, I mean, we've talked Rhode Island mafia. We, you know, now we're talking 
Massachusetts gaming, you know, violations. It's just like this is like a movie. It is. Um, it really is. You've got yeah, you've got um, the mob. You have gaming. You have people who were involved in the Whitey Bulger hunt. You know, turning to to on to this case uh, to resolve it. Um, there's a lot of drama in it and a lot of very quirky stories, as always, when you're um, you know, talking to uh, investigators and they take you into their world and some of the things that they, that they did and saw, it's just absolutely fascinating. Now, before we started this interview, you had mentioned that this month is, uh, what, what is this month again? Uh, fallen police officers uh, uh, month. Uh, that's probably not the f- a formal title, but it's it's uh, May is a month where uh, uh, all the f- uh, fallen police officers are honored. Um, I believe it's Fallen Police Officers Memorial Month, and there is also a special day designated also. But um, throughout the month. Uh, there have been a lot of postings on social media on, you know, fallen police officers and remembering uh, those that have been lost. So as far as when this book's available, when will readers actually be able to get their hands on it? They will be able to get their hands on it in June. Uh, there is a, right now there is a, uh, a link up on Amazon for Kindle only for pre-order, but you can expect the pre-order on Amazon to be up uh, very, very shortly. I was talking to the publisher and that should be coming up shortly. Um, let's face it, none of us ever do uh, pre-orders. We wait because you want it right away. <laughs> um, so it'll, it will be, uh, be available for readers in the next couple of weeks. That is that is great. I'm I'm really looking forward to reading that. It's going to be uh, very, very interesting. Uh, now, do you have any final thoughts about the case and what readers should look forward to, or you um, know how to stay involved and follow you and all that good stuff? Because yeah, well, you have a social media presence. Yes, uh, you can find me on on Twitter on Maureen E Boyle One. Uh, and the reason why it's not Maureen Boyle is an odd little reason. I had my actual name on Twitter once upon a time and it's still there, but I couldn't remember the password and couldn't remember what email I used. And it's only recently that I finally found what email I used for that. But in the meantime, I have the other, <laughs> other one. So if you find Maureen Boyle on Twitter, it'll say, you know, I can, you can find her on, uh, Maureen Boyle one. Um, I think it's Maureen Boyle one. <laughs> yes, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Yes, and um, uh, my website is uh, MaureenBoyleWriter.com. Uh, Shallow Graves is uh, ShallowGravesTheBook.com. I have a uh, author's Facebook page um, that you can follow me on, as well as a Facebook page for uh, the book, The Ghost, The the murder of um, Greg Adams and the hunt for his killer. So there's tons of stuff out there. I'm also on Instagram um, and some of the others. I am not on TikTok. I don't have <laughs> nearly enough uh, space on my phone to deal with TikTok. 
and I wouldn't even know where to begin. Yeah. So don't <laughs> <laughs> yes, my students love it. I I just I, I, I'll just I, miss, say, I missed that boat. I missed yeah, that boat. Exactly. Is all I'll say. Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. So and you know anyone can can uh, they can also uh, ask me questions on Goodreads if they're uh, if they're on Goodreads. Uh, Ask me anything about the book, about the case, about uh, shallow graves and the Bedford case, whatever they want, about writing, secrets. Yeah, and in regards, now this case, people will find out with reading of the book where this case goes. But in the case of shallow graves, if anybody has information about that case, should they just contact their local FBI office or oh, like 1-800-CALL-FBI? Or is there a... Uh, they, they should call the uh, Bristol County District Attorney's Office and um, ask to speak to Anne-Marie uh, Robertson. Uh, if they don't want to call the police directly, uh, they can only send me a message, um, you know, via Facebook or, um, or Twitter, and I'll get the message uh, to her. Okay, great. Great. Well, I think I think this book sounds awesome. I will definitely be uh, picking it up and I hope everybody else does as well. And uh, thank you again, Maureen, for joining me on Who Killed? All right. Well, thank you so much. I uh, it's always a pleasure talking with you and always a, pr a pleasure listening to your shows. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this week's episode of Who Killed? And Big shout out to author Maureen Boyle for taking time out of her busy schedule to discuss her new book about the murder of Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, Police Chief Greg Adams. The book is titled The Ghost, The Murder of Police Chief Greg Adams and the Hunt for His Killer. She also wrote another book called Shallow Graves, which can be found on Amazon.com. The Ghost will be available June 1st. Anyone with information regarding the New Bedford Highway killings, you are asked to contact the Bristol County Police at 508-995-1311. All calls will be kept confidential. As you guys know, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday, and that's pretty much everywhere you get your podcasts. And as always, if you guys do enjoy this podcast, as well as my other shows, you could help support by clicking on the link in the show notes. Or you can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. And it's no joke. Every contribution, big or small, really does help keep these slow burn podcasts on the air. And you can also support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Again, those reviews help keep the cases that I cover in the spotlight. And again, if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows that are coming down the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. So thank you again to Maureen Boyle. Thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. Until next time, as always, be healthy and stay safe. Hey 
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew. But after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.